Section 8 of Oscar Wilde from Purgatory by Hester Travers Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 The Spiritist Explanation. It may be well now, as we have discussed two possible explanations of Oscar Wilde's appearance, to consider a third. It may be Wilde himself who is speaking to us again. It is the obvious and simple explanation, but many of us set it aside, perhaps because, in accepting it, our imagination is not sufficiently excited. Why are our scientists so slow to admit the possibility that we survive death? Professor Richet's theory of cryptosthesia is difficult. I do not agree with him that it is proved as yet, it does not cover all the phenomena which he admits are genuine. In arriving at this stage, he has suffered actual pain as each fresh proof forced itself on him, and yet he states that he considers belief in survival superfluous when applied to the hundreds of cases he quotes. I can follow his argument, and I believe he will go further. In my long course of slow, humble experiments, I have experienced no pain in advancing towards faith in survival. I have found very great difficulty in believing that, through my pencil or the Ouija board, I am actually in communication with the dead. It has taken me twelve years to arrive at a stage when, reviewing my own work, I can see that it is of some real value. Until a mass of evidence has been piled up, there is little or no use in applying criticism of any psychic subject. A few cases teach us nothing and prove as little. Those who believe in annihilation are among the credulous. They have fixed a dogma for themselves on very slight grounds, so far as we can see, and every day, I think, will lessen their numbers. I was never one of them, so, naturally, I fail to understand their attitude. Neither can I understand the attitude of those who accept all the vapid messages we get from what they call the other side. Professor Richet says that we cannot prove survival, and I think he is right. What we can do is review our evidence fairly and without prejudice. Thus, each of us can come to his own conclusions. This is demanding a great deal, for prejudices are deeply rooted complexes in the subconscious, which have such a firm hold that we cannot consciously shake them off. Granting that we have a mass of evidence before us, how should we deal with it? The only real satisfactory method is to make our own results. In other words, to arrive at them through our own experiments. We cannot all do this, Many of us must take the word of those who have had the power to act as mediums, even in a small way, and who have devoted a great deal of time for a number of years in order to evolve some theory on the subject. Proof of survival varies with the minds of individuals. I meet a great many people who are most anxious to get in touch with the dead. The proofs they desire might be placed roughly into two classes – they demand either messages of an emotional nature, or a number of small and unimportant details connected with the supposed communicator's earth life. 
few are interested in allowing an entire personality to reconstruct itself slowly through the medium. Of course, the ideal should be to combine an accurate memory of the earth life with the mentality that we were familiar with and through a number of sittings to heap up evidence that the personality survives. These ideal proofs, however, are very rare. We generally get a few small details of the earth life or a number of rather vapid messages of a consoling order from our mediums. Now, if I may express an opinion on such an entirely metaphysical point as to the value of these messages, I should say that the recollection of small details of the existence on earth constitutes, by itself, but a very imperfect proof of continued personality. Still less does evidence such as the Times tests, which, though of enormous value as proving Professor Richet's theory of cryptesthesia, and of very great interest, seem to me to be ludicrous as evidence of an afterlife. In Professor Richet's words, I feel that spirit intervention is superfluous here, unless it is ascribed to the mysterious entity which we call the spirit guide. If I were at the telephone, anxiously trying to prove my identity to some near friend or relative, I would scarcely be inclined to tell him that the shop window round the corner was broken, or that in the times of tomorrow morning he would see on the third column, near the bottom of the page, the name of some place where he and I had stayed, or of some person we had met. It seems to me, looking at it from the rational point of view, that this would be outside probability. Neither do I take it as a proof of survival that the dead are supposed to be occupied in superintending the business affairs of the living. It is inconceivable that a discarnate mind can trouble itself about the investment of money, the terms of a lease, the taking of a house, etc. Indeed, accuracy in giving names of people and places is no proof either, these can all come through supernormal cognition of the medium, or through the guide. Yet these are the results which convince many persons. To me, even the emotional or sentimental message, if characteristic, is worth more than this. All these cases to which I have alluded are of more value to the student of psychology than any evidence of the afterlife which we can offer him, and he will do well to devote time and trouble to the study of such surprising phenomena. But, to my thinking, he need not connect this type of evidence with the discarnate spirit of any dead person. If I were asked, then, to state what I consider proof of an afterlife, I should reply, reconstruction of personality. If we ever really attain to this, it cannot be ascribed to cryptosthesia from the medium. If, in twelve sittings with X, I am satisfied that I have been in touch with my father's personality, if his train of thought and ideas have been reconstructed and the style of his conversation preserved, I have a more definite proof that his mind is still alive than if he had told me I ought to invest £100, which I happen to have at hand, in war bonds, or that I should see a sentence in a certain position, on a certain date in the Times, in which the word cork 
would occur, which is the name of the town in which he was born. The reconstruction of personality coming through a medium who had not known my father would require powers quite beyond the scope of Professor Richet's cryptesthesia. It would require sustained powers, lasting through many sittings, if the subtleties of the human mind were revealed. The proof we demand is that mind survives. Small details could at best be merely an indication that somehow a memory remained. If, however, we believe that inanimate objects retain memories, which I consider an indisputable fact, as I have proved it through dozens of experiments, then it seems possible that any person who retains memories may convey them to the medium telepathically, or that cryptesthesia may be aroused. Trifling details do not necessarily indicate that a discarnate personality is there. Sir Hugh Lane spoke to Mr. Lennox Robinson and me on the evening on which the news of the loss of the Lusitania reached Dublin, and before either of us knew he was on board the wrecked vessel. That message was, in a sense, very convincing, although some of the details given were incorrect. I confess it did not convince me. A good deal of what came through was personal, and could have been constructed by our subconscious minds. The subsequent sittings, however, shook my faith in the worthlessness of this first message. At every sitting for months afterwards, Sir Hugh came pressing through impetuously with messages about the return of his pictures, now in the London National Gallery, to Dublin. Again, I could have constructed the matter, but the manner of the communication and the character were so definitely Sir Hugh's that I have now no doubt that he survives, somewhere, somehow. I have tried to explain what I consider the only logical method of criticising evidence of human survival, and if we analyse the cases which have been made public, we shall find that very few of them are reconstructions of personality, and of course much of the evidence is of such a private and personal nature that the public is unable to follow it. Some communications from celebrated persons have a tinge of what we might expect, but I have not come across anything really valuable in this line. And yet, it should be very much easier to reconstruct a public character if the subconscious mind is capable of reproducing personality. In Professor Richet's book, he quotes several extracts from communications of supposed celebrities, and in reading them, I felt he was justified in attributing them to the subconscious mind. They seemed hardly more than conscious plagiarism. The case of Oscar Wilde differs, I think, from those quoted by Professor Richet. Our script is long and continuous. The same personality is there from beginning to end, a personality which is unmistakable, with which we are familiar to an unusual extent because of the strange vicissitudes of his career. We have three separate proofs in this script of the identity of our communicator. First, similar handwriting. Secondly, his style, or rather his two styles. And thirdly, his ideas. His mind, in other words. 
if we had this handwriting alone it would be very curious and interesting because here many of the characteristics of oscar wilde's writing are to be found and his was no ordinary hand which could easily be imitated it has all the flow and irregularity characteristic of the artist of course if this had been our only proof it should of necessity be attributed to subconscious memory even if a vague resemblance of style were added we should still reject it as a proof of survival what we demand is that added to this handwriting there should be the style of wilde's writings and above all the mind behind it now if we analyse these scripts i think we shall find that we have one of the rare cases where evidence can be said to be complete let us imagine that in the unseen oscar wilde is making an attempt to convince us that he's still alive he seizes the pencil from another writer at the mention of the word lily and proceeds to give us a proof of his existence by an essay in which he continually inserts passages which might remind us of his work he is naturally rather annoyed with me when i interrupt him and ask questions he is only experimenting with his mediums and finds them clumsy tools at first he is not thinking of reproducing his style at its best he is anxious to force his identity on us at the second sitting he has realised how difficult it is to convince those who are still alive he therefore finds in the society for psychical research that society of magnificent doubters a fine opportunity he is in the same position over there as we are here why should he not found a society of superannuated shades for the investigation of the living who but oscar wilde could have written this little message he cannot be said to have lost his sense of humour in the twilight in the literary talks again we have all the characteristics of wilde's mind his play of words on the ideas of others is a game which he finds irresistible he shoots out his remarks without any feeling of veneration for his literary brethren these impish phrases trip off his tongue grazing the surface of things even here he is not occupied so much with the writers he is criticising as with his power to dock them off with a few well-selected words the spiritist should be interested by some ideas in the ouija board of the life beyond which are i think unusual i have not come across them myself before the nakedness of mind of which i have previously spoken is new to me also the fluid mental conditions which wilde does not explain are unlike what we meet with in the usual automatic message on what plane or sphere are we cast into twilight shut away from light and beauty and given dull and monotonous tasks to perform we may well ask why this further punishment has been inflicted on a soul who has suffered so deeply in his earth life we can only speculate perhaps through his too highly developed senses wilde failed to reach his spiritual part except during those dreadful years in prison when he realised for the first time what the beauty of sorrow meant his spirit may have found expression for the first time within the walls of his cell 
it may have owed its birth to misfortune. Two years are a short time out of prison, a long time there. The spirit of Oscar Wilde left Reading Jail an infant, an infant proud and glad of its birth, if we are to take De Profundis as a sincere expression of Wilde's feelings. It left its sterile nursery to face a bitter wind of scorn and disappointment, and to realise the supreme misery of mental impotence. Poverty of mind, added to poverty of the material things that had made life a too heavily scented garden, drove poor Wilde towards a new weakness, the drowning of mental sterility with the anaesthetic of drink. He felt instinctively that he had come to the end of everything, his wife and children, social position, property, good name, and most of his friends were gone. When the door of his prison opened for him at last, he looked forward to shelter from the few faithful friends who had still the courage to be seen in his company, and he believed that a fresh spring of literary work, growing out of the birth of the spirit, which had come to him through his fall, was to be his. He found the bread he had to earn salt. Indeed, the earning of it more irksome when he discovered that an intellectual winter was upon him. The infant spirit shivered and sank away once more. We, who are human, can hardly blame poor Wilde because weakness overtook him a second time. The moral strength was not there, that was all. We make our own fate, perhaps, or perhaps it is shaped for us through our degree of spiritual development. If Wilde had arrived at a surer realisation of his spirit, a glimpse of which he caught in Reading Jail, he might have passed into a more serene light than most of us when he put off the garment of his body. As it is, he has been cast again into twilight, and it is infinitely pathetic to find that he still cries for objective beauty. He speaks of the wonderful revelation that came to him in prison. There he was able to throw off his body and set his mind free. Now there is no body to escape from. He is fluid mind and nothing more. He knows his term of dimness will be long, but he will rise again as the wheel revolves. That certainty is given him that he may endure. In his earth life he experienced more good and evil than the average human being more evil than good, unfortunately. Now he must complete that experience and pierce to the innermost retreats of good and evil. The dimness in which he withers is not the dimness of his cell, for now he has the power of knowledge such as all the justice that has tortured the poor world since it was born cannot attain. If we are to believe in the sincerity of the wild of De Profundis, we may recall what he says of humility. Humility in the artist is the frank acceptance of all experiences, just as love in the artist is simply the sense of beauty that reveals to the world its body and soul. I fear the wild of these scripts has scarcely attained to humility in the sense he uses the word here. All through, even in speaking his spiritual revelations in prison, there is a loud note of egoism and hauteur. 
he has not frankly accepted experiences. They have been forced upon him. He has revolted against them, and still is revolting. He is not meekly accepting his place of dimness. Pity Oscar Wilde, he says, one who in the world was a king of life, bound to Ixion's wheel of thought I must complete forever the circle of my experiences. He uses the same simile when, in De Profundis, he speaks of sorrow. Before sorrow had made my days her own, and bound me to her wheel, etc., justice, he says, is the completion of experience, nothing more. Human justice, according to Wilde, is merely the storing up of remorse, which is anguish more acute than human beings can attain to. To torture your fellows as a benediction secures you this remorse at the other side. We cannot hope that the author of De Profundis has remained even on the shoulder of the mountain to which he had climbed towards the end of his time in jail. It is twenty-three years since he died in sordid poverty and degraded by drink, and he still bemoans his condition. He knows his term will be long. Perhaps he has not realised humility or love as he has explained them in his moment of vision. Through this chapter, I have spoken as if I were entirely convinced of human survival. I can say sincerely that no case I have come across has done so much for my belief in the spiritist theory as this of Oscar Wilde. Hitherto I have felt, and indeed I still feel, that the work of Mr. Bly Bond at Glastonbury is the most interesting page in the book of psychical research. We cannot, however, take the Glastonbury scripts as a proof of human survival. We might describe them better as the most overwhelming cases of cryptosthesia in existence. And further, cryptosthesia in four different persons, wholly unconnected with each other, concerning the same subject. It certainly proves the survival of memories, but it can scarcely be described as proving the survival of personality. This case appeals to me because of its completeness. My critics will no doubt attack it from the literary standpoint, and prove again that the dead wild is vastly inferior to the living wild. These literary critics will not take our difficulties into consideration, they will probably be prejudiced in spite of themselves against the improbability of my tale. The spiritualists and students of metaphysics will merely differ in their explanations of results. The script should appeal to all who take any interest in psychic phenomena. If Oscar Wilde from the twilight realises that he is the subject of discussion once more, it must afford him some amusement that he, who is now a fluid mind, can still make his bow to the public. He will no doubt find entertainment if he can leap into the minds of my critics, and if I give him a sitting at the Ouija board, I am sure he will be ready to answer them. For I am almost tempted to believe that the soul and mind of Oscar Wilde still live, and will continue to develop, 
until having pierced to the innermost retreats of good and evil he rises again to ecstasy end of section eight